Fantasy Animation is a completely free, online, educational resource dedicated to examining the relationship between fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. It is staffed by a volunteer army of academics and animators who give up their time to run the website so that our audience can be kept informed not just about the latest goings-on in the world of all things that are drawn, imagined and sculpted, but to help inform them about the historical, political, ethical and aesthetic ramifications of what it means to make an animated fantasy. Check out our weekly blog posts containing insights on everything from the sexual identity of Spongebob Squarepants to how to make an animation on a pair of knickers. You can also access our archive of podcasts featuring Oscar-winning VFX supervisors, historians, classicists, animators and folklorists discussing their favourite examples of fantasy animation. To find out more, visit us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Reddit at FanAnimResearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research, or visit fantasy-animation.org. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello listeners and welcome to the latest episode of this Fantasy Animation Podcast with me, Chris Holliday. And me, Alex Sargent. So for this episode, we are dipping our proverbial toe back into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, um, taking on uh, WandaVision, uh, the recent American, very recent in fact, um, American television miniseries that um, recently streamed on Disney+. Plus. Uh, it's an interesting one for us. We don't often do TV, um, but this felt like a really great opportunity to, to in, in, I guess in true Marvel fashion, make some connections between the, the big and the small screen. So it's set in the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and shares a lot of sort of intertextual referencing um, citations, that kind of stuff with the films in the franchise. And obviously we've done a couple of episodes um, on uh, Marvel films already. So yeah, a great opportunity to, to kind of do something different with the MCU, Alex. Yeah, absolutely. And and from my perspective with my, with my classic fantasy hat on, I think it's an interesting example of um, intermedial imaginary in that uh, it's a it's a it's a text as you said from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which has always been a cross media universe, but by that branding um, kind of suggests a sort of relationship with the cinematic that that this is definitely playing with. Um, I'm uh, I'm I'm reminded actually of a very recent article by James Taylor on the sort of cross. Uh, medial aesthetic of uh, Marvel and and he talks a lot about sort of the ways in which Marvel codes its movies um, around a certain sort of privileging of films over television shows and the ways it uses both and I think this is an interesting text for that because obviously it's it's not the first Marvel television series there's been plenty on Netflix but it's it's it became thanks to COVID and the pandemic the first Marvel TV series on Disney Plus which seems to have announced some sort of break or separation from the way in which Marvel television series were done prior to this moment. And there's a certain amount of stakes and experimentation in this show that that um, signals as a calling card, I think, for how Marvel might use its television series um, in future. So I'm interested in talking about how the, the TV show is interested in television and interested in cinema as kind of imaginary objects of spectacle, uh, the way it uses that and some of the sort of uh, things that are good about it, but also some things that I think uh, I think I've always got a slightly ambivalent relationship with Marvel in that it's very good at being very experimental in a very safe uh, manner. So we can unpick that as the sort of conversation um, unfolds. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had a few notes on yeah exactly that. The I mean, I'm a, I'm a fan of the the marvel films and 
offshoot television series of this of which this is yeah this is one that is perhaps doing something different i guess with my animation um hat on you talked about the sort of imaginary of television and i think the animation of the series and deliberately its use as part of its um creative the creative bargain that it strikes with the with the history of the the u.s sitcom is rooted in animation and there's some really interesting stuff i think around the ways in which certain episodes and particularly the second episode of nine i think um episode two uses a particular style of animated title sequence to really anchor the series within histories of the sitcom and 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 that kind of dated aesthetic of of mid mid uh, 1950s 1960s uh, animation that we've talked previously on the podcast that sort of modernist design that the limited animation of certain kinds of studios here the Hanna-Barbera influenced title sequence that draws heavily from from sitcoms like like Bewitched and, and so I'm really interested in the role that animation plays on that side in terms of dating the series but also you know the the the, the one division as a series includes a lot of, of visual effects and again there's some interesting stuff around the impact of the pandemic on the way that the series why it's nine episodes and not 10 or 12 um, how some scenes were shot but they didn't have time to VFX them and so they were cut and so I think it, VFX plays a, a, an interesting role or, or digital animation, animation, the medium of animation plays an interesting role in both dating the series in two ways, the history of the sitcom and a series in 2020, 2021. Um, Why don't we try and see if we can describe what it is? I mean, listeners hopefully have seen it because we are going to spoil the death out of it. So, you know, um, bear that in mind. Um, but yeah. an attempt to sort of summarise what it is, right? So it's it's... Ha, what is it? It's it's the story or the sort of tragic romance of Wanda and Vision, two characters we've seen a lot of in the previous movies, but in, but cu- crucially two characters who've never had their own sort of title film yeah. before. They've always been um, subsidiary players in other Marvel movies. Um, and they've always already been established um, as having a romance. Uh, and in the last time we saw Vision, he had, of course, died um, spectacularly in in, um, in Infinity War and um, an Endgame. So this is a, uh, a kind of dreamlike, hallucinogenic... Lynchian kind of strange world we enter into in which we see Wanda and Vision um, perform the role of a sitcom couple um, each episode and as the series starts each episode kind of jumps into a different decade of sitcom lore. We start in the 50s and then the second episode is in the 60s. Um, It goes on like that for a few. And then slowly the series itself reveals that this strange sitcom format is in fact part of a wider narrative which is much more rooted in the sort of storytelling of Marvel. Um, It involves, um, you know, dark forces and uh, government uh, agencies and all the kind of stuff we would normally expect to see. And I guess slowly Slowly, the show becomes more conventionally Marvel as it gets to it. And then by the end of it, it's basically ends in a great big sort of 40-minute Marvel uh, action sequence, yeah? Um, and what we get is this, like, kind of, I guess, the story of how we go from why our Vision and Wanda pretending to be in Bewitched to... Um, <laughs> to, to folding them back into um, the continuity narrative of um, the Marvel franchise. Is that a decent enough job, Chris? Yeah, well, I guess on the topic of continuity, one can't do Marvel without talking about about chronology and, 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 and stuff like that. And 
and this is both within the series and then then where the series fits in relation to other Marvel products. So this is, as you said at the start, one of a number of Disney Plus series that are invested in or following or will follow the tribulations of supporting, and I use that term quite broadly, supporting characters. As you said, there have been plenty of sort of television series that are interested in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Mm. Um, I'm thinking of... Uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is probably the most famous, perhaps closely followed by Agent Carter. Um, Jessica Jones, I guess, more recently. Um, and then a couple of others, uh, def- The Defenders and, and The Punisher, are one of the uh, two of the, the, the most recent. This is different. So this is a series that is specifically you or, or specifically invested in the MCU in a way that is deliberately trying to set up some of the events that will then happen in in future films. So we have WandaVision as the first, followed by uh, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which I'm yet to start, but excited to, um, and then Loki, which I'm not really that interested in, but that's more to do with Tom Hiddleston than it is the MCU. So See, I'm the other way around. I'm, I'm, I, I've am i got to be honest, I'm no interested in Captain America, but um, I'll go with Loki, although sure. Tom Hiddleston, sure. Yeah, fine. Yeah, fine. Um, um, so that's our obligatory Bond reference in by any other name, our reference <laughs> towards Tom Hiddleston. Anyway, so these three series, I think, collectively begin Phase 4. So Phase 4 is this sort of, um, yeah, will be this group of superhero films and, and, and um connected television series that follow on from the um, Infinity Saga. I guess what's interesting about this is that, as I said, WandaVision and, and Falcon and the Winter Soldier and ultimately Loki are setting up a big big screen uh, franchise. And, and the events of WandaVision, notwithstanding the fact we begin in the 1950s, is immediately after the events or closely after the events of Avengers Endgame, mm-hmm. which also positions the series as roughly simultaneous to uh, Spider-Man Far From Home. Um, we, I often think that Avengers Endgame is the thing that ended, but actually we had another film as part of Phase 3. We had Spider-Man Far From Home. So WandaVision is taking place a few weeks after um, Avengers Endgame. It is also running kind of relatively simultaneous to Spider-Man Far From Home. Uh, and it is also playing with, as you say, the 50s, 60s and 70s, then jumping out um, to 2023, and then we're back. Yeah, sorry, it's three years, not three weeks. What am I talking about? Um, 1980s, 2000s, 2010s, and then back to 2023 again. So it's doing an awful lot with regards to to, to kind of time and its treatment of, of, of time, which obviously is something that the MCU has always been interested in. Yeah, I, and I think this is where some of my reservations um, start to sort of um, articulate themselves in you know I, I like I like the show quite a bit I thought it was it was it was good and I, I preferred the first half to the second half um, but hey I'm a I'm a film academic I'm gonna say stuff like that so you know I'm not I'm not really interested in doing that too much what I what I think it highlights is something I'm trying to think through is in my own relationship to the sort of um, the cinema the, the Marvel franchise is that what you've got with the, the I mean, I think that the sec, the other time context to talk about is the sort of industrial context that this is the first Disney Plus Marvel uh, television show, and Disney Plus is is quite clearly an attempt by the Disney Corporation to maximise its profit potential via streaming networks. So it has an economic investment in getting these television shows to mean something because obviously their their industrial model going forward is they're clearly going to have these big, 
you know, tentpole releases still in cinemas, we hope, um, you know, after everything settles down um, post-COVID. But they're also going to hopefully rely on us all having these subscription services to Disney Plus once a year, which gives them a, a solid um, revenue stream. So so one can't help think about the fact that, that part of what they're doing with these TV, of, of expanding the, the, the stakes of Marvel into the television realm, is to make it important to watch these TV shows. And in this, in this, I find myself. Well, there's the icky, just you know, consumer relationship. But I'm sort of over that. I'll, I can get over that. It's a Marvel franchise. I'm not expecting radical politics. Um, I, I am a consumer. It's fine. Um, but uh, for the purposes of this discussion, at least. But but what I'm what I struggle with is just on a basic sort of narrative stakes level. What you have here is an economic model that demands greater and greater narrative sophistication and complexity, greater and greater adherence to a sort of wider syntactic structure that is the Marvel narrative framework, and yet less and less focus or importance on individual texts. And what that means on a narrative level is that the the Marvel films, in my opinion, become about more and more things, but each thing becomes less and less important. and one can't help watch WandaVision thinking that it is a narrative designed by a committee that is both incredibly important whilst you're watching it and not important at all once it's finished because you could not watch this and probably jump from Avengers Endgame to the next, um, uh, it's going to be, what is it, the Doctor Strange movie. And it, and, it, and it won't really matter other than a line or two. And you could probably not even watch the Doctor Strange movie and just watch the next Avengers movie when it comes out in four years. And it probably won't matter other than a line or two. So it's this, it's this great and greater narrative complexity, but less and less narrative consequence that I find just a little bit tiresome as a consumer. Yeah, and I suppose the, the, when we say the next, the next Marvel film, there's nothing to say the next Marvel film will have any connection to anything. Um, and so this yeah. WandaVision could be, as you say, anticipating, uh, if we say that the next Marvel film will be Black Widow, which it, it should be, all being well this this summer, July mm. 2021, followed by uh, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, Eternals, Spider-Man No Way Home, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, and then sequels to Thor, Black Panther, uh, The Marvels, which is what WandaVision is also mm-hmm. setting up, sequels then again to ant-man uh, guardians of the galaxy and then um a to be announced fantastic four which will bring us some way into to, to phase four so the next uh, i would be very surprised if there are references to to wandavision in the first three or four of those and we are going to jump ahead and what's being anticipated is not the next marvel film but the 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 marvel film in five marvel yeah. films time and it gets me thinking i think i mean we use intertextuality a lot and we've talked a lot about um referencing and 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 this obviously goes back to to Kristeva and and uh lit- her writing on literary structures and and how uh certain kinds of structures are generated in relation to to other structures and and focuses we should be focusing on the importance of pre-existing structures in connection with the analysis of current structures um and then she says any text is constructed as a mosaic of quotations any text is the absorption and transformation of another the notion of intertextuality replaces that of intersubjectivity and poetic language is read as at least uh read as at least double but actually, from what you're saying, we all know we all know what intertextuality is, this really amazing dynamic process where we read something and chart the movement of ideas across across texts. We see how a text reverberates and hums with the meaning of other texts and so forth. But from what you're saying, it, there's a fine line in something like WandaVision where is the interest 
only the call to arms that it makes or the intertextual references. The the interest is is not in the text, but merely the plotting of reference points or the 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 connections, the connectives that are the important thing. Um, and whether or not we're invested in the series around that and whether there's enough there or whether it, as you say, we could watch WandaVision or we could not watch WandaVision and, and not feel like we miss out anything that's going to be anticipated later on. So really the process is a difficult one. This idea of kind of hunter gathering, as Henry Jenkins would say, you know, you hunter and, and gather ideas and concepts and try to, to construct these broader, mm. these broader worlds. But actually intertextuality is really about interrogating these kinds of citational practices um thinking about the origins of texts the fact that they're perhaps always second or third generation but it, i feel like with with marvel that that there's a there's a real fine line between the interest in the film as a collection of connectives mm. and then the interest in the connective itself a singular moment that's that's a, a a reference point. So do yeah. we enjoy Marvel films as a collection of these kind of mosaic or tissue of quotations? Or in WandaVision, are we just kind of going through itemizing these these different gestures that it makes to different kinds of media? Um, and actually, I wonder whether in the case of WandaVision, it, it, it tries to make references to, you know, the American, history of the American sitcom. And then at the same time, I, th I think when you said about the split between the first three episodes and then the second part of the series, the first three episodes are quite self-enclosed and then we move out into a typically Marvel mm. universe. And so what we end up having to do is, is there are two kinds of intertextual practices here, a kind of reference... I think what John Fisk would call horizontal and, inter uh, and, and vertical. So references to texts of similar kinds and references to texts of different kinds. And the, and the series is trying to do both. It's trying mm. to gesture outwards and then also balance that with a series of citations that are trying to really ground it in the MCU. And I'm, I, I did really like the series, but I definitely preferred... I don't know, actually. I, I kind of preferred the sitcom -y bits, but definitely think that after a few episodes you couldn't keep pushing that you have to then do something with that which i think is where the series then yeah. shifts i think what i'm trying to articulate is that it's not i don't really mind that that's happening but what i'm what i find what i find interesting about it and actually uh, this comes from a conversation i had with a with a notable scholar and bond expert been on this podcast edward lamberti a few weeks ago about the difference between uh, avengers infinity war and unforgiven and and he was asking me whether he should go see Infinity War when he's not seen any of the Marvel movies. Uh, and we ended up having a conversation about the difference between Unforgiven and Infinity War. And he, and the reason we made that comparison is that Unforgiven is an incredibly intertextual text. It is a film in which to just see Unforgiven in isolation is to not really be able to access the levels of meaning that Unforgiven represents. Because you really need to have seen a lot of Clint Eastwood's back catalogue. You need to have seen lots of westerns. You need to have seen lots of movies about the West and the past and things like that, really to get at um, Unforgiven. It assumes a lot of cultural capital uh, of, the, of the spectator. Um, and in many ways, that's very similar to something like Infinity War, because Infinity also assumes that you have, in see, you have seen all these Marvel movies. So in one way, yeah. you could argue they're very similar. But I would argue the difference is, is that what, what Marvel seems to encourage through all this sort of complex intertextual connections is actually quite a shallow engagement with narrative comprehension. 
yeah? It isn't about the nuanced subtleties of, of subtextual meaning that we as cinephiles have been, in, have been taught to interpret. Yeah, it's not about finding a depth of engagement. It's actually about fueling a sort of uh, fandom-based, internet-based, gossip-based, forum-based correspondence of that ties with that, this ties with this. It's about slotting the bits into a pretty simple narrative formula rather than it's about thinking about sort of the, the nuances of meaning in any particular story. A story isn't necessarily interesting for its for its fictional details, so much of it sort of um, echoes what it can say, what it can mean without saying or without saying so explicitly, or at least that's sort of what we've been taught to, to believe. Um, so I just find that really all this does is fuel like fan theories. And I'm not criticizing fans, but these, you know, fan theories where, oh, what if Toy Story is in the same world as Monsters, Inc.? What if Andy is actually sort of suffering from this? What if, well, you know, these sort of ways of making the narrative more complicated to avoid making the narrative more complicated, avoid making the narrative complicated on a sort of thematic, residual level. And I'd really like us to do more of that with Marvel. And I find it actually quite a struggle to do that because the films sort of just want you to go, ah, it was actually part of this universe, which is also part of that universe, which is also tying in with this phase and that phase and this thing. And, 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 and it demands quantity of viewership rather than quality of viewership. That's my rant over. And I, I but I do, I do struggle with that with Marvel. That said, this is a really interesting text mm. to read exactly the ways I've just said. So I'd like to do that a bit if we could. <laughs> well, let's we can jump to, to episode episode one because that really sets the the tone. Um, I guess just on what you said very quickly, the split yeah. between narrative comprehension and actually just straightforward shifting chronology. Yeah. And there's a there's a sense in which we've we've. And, and whether this is Marvel's fault, it's perhaps a combination of two factors about the, the emergence of complex narration and and, and mm. stuff like the puzzle film and the mind game film and all the kinds of stuff that, that we, we perhaps uh, have mentioned already. But there's a split between that kind of approach to narrative, narrative yeah. comprehension is confusing, and just straightforward a series of texts which take place along at a different points in a chronology. Mm. And actually... A series of texts that take place at different moments on a relatively linear chronology is not really complexity. It's just well, slotting, as you say, into a series of, and then this happened, but it didn't. It's not just, it, and then it happened. What happened was that it happened kind of at the same time as something else. And actually, episode four of One Division is the first episode to focus on that kind of outside mm -hmm. world, but it sort of takes us back to the beginning because all of the events from episode four. Uh, events that would have happened simultaneously to the episodes one, two, mm. and three, because that's the, so. So it's complex, but actually it's not. It's just it's a narrative. Yeah. There's a difference between narrative narrative comprehension and all, and, and all these moving parts, and then actually yeah. just intervening into a, a broader universe yeah. at various there's, junctures. There's also a difference between complex and complicated. Um, yeah. You know, and I, and I do think this sort of narrative complexity. You know, I mean, Mattel articulates it to start with, but it's been you know re reused by lots of scholars. I I don't think I don't think what that is. So, so he's talking about televisual narration. I think actually that's really important because I want to get onto that in just a second. But but he's talking about televisual narration as this new example of narrative complexity because it allows for exactly the kind of things that we've been talking about thus far on the podcast. Greater opportunity for more complicated chronological elements, a story with more 
unfolding arcs, characters that can be slightly more uh, or or more subtly drawn out over a long period of time, and therefore a more complex narrative situation. I would argue that it's not complex. Complex isn't the right word. Complicated is the right word. You know, the Maltese Falcon is complex. Um, I'm not saying that Marvel isn't, but I'm saying the Maltese complex uh, Col- Fulton is incredibly complex. Because, but but it's not that difficult to understand at a narrative level. It's very easy to understand at a narrative level. Um, what's complex about it is all the other stuff. Yeah. So what's complex are the relationships between characters mm. and the kind of the, the the discourse of 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 bluff and show and tell that support a film noir espionage, whatever it is, mm-hmm. style drama, male yeah. melodrama. Um, yeah. And the artistry compl- of the filmmaking, yeah. the representation of gender and race, the, uh, you know, the, the portrayal of all the stuff you might want to, to throw at the movie to try and understand it. All the stuff that, listeners, if you're still with us, we try to do each week on the podcast. That's what's complicated. Sorry. That's what's complex about any film or television show yeah the fact that it's difficult to to work out who's who and what order it all happened in i don't think a sudoku puzzle is very complex but it is complicated to do it takes a lot of brain power yes there we go so so there we go first note wandavision equals no 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 see now wandavision doesn't because i think i think there is something really interesting about wandavision and 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 it reminded me and i was watching it of a book um, by Paul Young called The Cinema Dreams Its Rivals, which is not a book I've thought about in a very long time, but is a really excellent book about a subgenre of films that he calls uh, fantasy media films. So these are films about fantasy films about fantasies of media. So they're stories in which radio, television, uh, other types of media forms takes part in the narrative in some ways. And I hadn't thought about this book for ages, but what an interesting example of a fantasy media this is, fil- film. And what we have here is a is a series that has become more and more like a television show in the way it structures its um, films. It's become more and more episodic. It's become more and more serialized. Telling its first Disney Plus television show, and it becomes about television. Uh, and I know we do this in every week, but this, this is definitely about television and about marvel being on television the relationship between marvel and television and the way the 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 one division uses that and i read this series as at least the bits that i like the most of it as an extended imaginary engagement and an anxiety dream about one losing one's identity within television format um and uh and I just think, I think on that level, it's an incredibly rich text because I think uh, the way it plays with assumed nostalgia, the way it plays with the ideas of television convention as both trapping um, of the characters and trapping of the show, the way it plays with uh, script and structure, the way Wanda is in herself a sort of television showrunner uh, on her own uh, sitcom, uh, all of that I think is really, really interesting and is and is not coincidentally... Uh, in a show in which the show itself is a is an expression of an identity in a televisual mode of something that was once cinematic. So I've got loads to say about that. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. That this is because I've read a, a few things on it. It being a sort of yeah, a, 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 an engagement with trauma uh, that comes at a particularly um, germane moment in in the current 
cultural landscape with regards to to, to pandemic uh, and isolation and and we're all of course all waiting the wave of of kind of pandemic media interpretations and actually I think a lot and we talked about this sort of informally um, before we started. And, and and I guess the role of the, the podcast in bringing to the four things that, well, yes, that's obvious because we've seen it. So there are things in there that have caught, I mean, yes, there are things in there that are in there because we've seen it and we can all talk about it. But I quite like the idea of, of kind of taking a step out and using WandaVision as, as, in the way that it treats, yeah, it's about television and the way that it treats the history of the American sitcom and actually being a reflection on what it means for Marvel to be on TV, to take characters that you've only seen on the big screen and stick them in a, a truncated aspect ratio mm. to do black and white, to, to think about television as, yeah, television, the imaginary of television, but at the same time, what it might mean for Marvel to be on TV and the anxieties, Wanda's anxieties are Marvel's anxieties as they work through how to fit their tropes and conventions into a pre-existing set of televisual mm. structures. So I like that idea as a sort of, yes, it's about nostalgia and the sitcom because we've seen it. I've, I know it's about mm. the, the sitcom because I've seen it, but it's Wanda as showrunner is a really fab way of thinking, you know, the, yeah. the, these, these fantasies of control and, and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, absolutely. And actually you say it's nostalgic, it kind of is nostalgic, but... It's an interesting kind of nostalgia because I don't think the target audience is... They're not designed to have seen any of these examples. All no. the examples they're using, certainly the earlier ones, are shows that exist within the cultural zeitgeist still in some form that I suspect most audiences have come across but are not shows they have seen. So it's not really engaging. It's not going, hey... Fans of Bewitched and I Dream a Genie and I Love Lucy, this is the Marvel show for you. What it's doing is using a kind of cultural lexicon of the American sitcom. I think it, it, it's trying to, as you say, it's trying to trap its view, its characters in a format that feels very rigidly television. Um, mm. and, and it's interesting that it calls back to this era because obviously this is the golden age of broadcast television. This is the age of episodic, weekly, uh, you know, five channels, massive audiences, family viewing, um, you know, white, conservative, all that kind of stuff. It's the golden age of television as a, as a solid industry practice separated from cinema. Um, it doesn't quite work if you said it in the 90s and 2000s alone, because then we start getting into shows that can be seen on DVD and can be seen and sit, you know, and, and things like, you know, sitcoms that end up becoming films and all this kind of stuff, which happened in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s as well. But by but but I think it's using that format to, to literally kind of trap its characters in television, in television land, um, which is exactly what the show kind of, you could argue, does, because there's an anxiety over, oh my God, this is the Marvel Cinematic Universe and we're about to tell our first story of consequence, you know, that isn't a sort of subsidiary text through the medium of something called television. And yet, it does that to kind of announce that and also kind of oops, soothe some anxieties by showing the sort of grotesque nightmare of what that could look like and then weaving out a sort of alternative path. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are obviously discussions around quality television and cinema. The, mm -hmm. you know, the, the elusive word "cinematic" that is a ridiculous word when people talk about oh, it's so cinematic. And I remember being a television studies student and having conversations about quality television and, and what quality television means. And this was this was immediately post Sopranos, Six Feet Under, um, tw just before Twenty Four. That kind of that kind of um, 
period. Mm. What's interesting to me actually is is the the importance of then the sitcom in all of this because it's it's rooted in staging and an illusion and and actually this this makes the the uh, the previous Marvel text Spider Man Far From Home a lot more prescient because because that film is all about. Uh, the the manipulation of effects and mysteria of this character played by Jake Gyllenhaal kind of constructs worlds through digital illusion and the idea of kind of staging and 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 setting and what's real and what isn't WandaVision is a really interesting lead on from that because it takes the tropes especially in episode 1 the Dick Van Dyke show I Love Lucy that sort of 1950s style canned laughter black and white theme tune aspect ratio shifting and advertising, the role of advertising in sort of constructing this world of, of media saturation at a time when the television was part and parcel or becoming progressively part and parcel of the American sort of domestic space. It's all about kind of forms of illusion and, and the world mm. that you believe and, and superhero movies are all about identities in recession. And, and so I really liked what the programme was doing with regards to illusion, uh, embedding, because there's that one shot at the very, very end of episode one where we come out of the television screen and it ends with somebody in colour watching the programme mm. and, Im- and embedded levels of fiction, which I think are really sort of clever. But clever. But the, I suppose the, the ha- whether or not the sitcom... I mean, the sitcom could hamstring the characters, but it's, it's an interesting experiment by taking these characters that have been part of quite explosive narratives on the big screen and then putting them into really mundane situations and trying to tease out something using the sitcom as a way of of teasing out the medium specificity of of television versus Mm. cinema but also at a time when a lot of films presumably are going to be consumed on the small screen because we can't go out and about Mm. and so what we are doing and you get a lot of of filmmakers that are talking about you know please don't watch tenet on a iPhone and all that sort of stuff you know mm-hmm. don't watch cinema on the on on a sm- on the small screen and actually WandaVision narrativizes that potential tension <laughs> really nicely mm-hmm. um and then use and then supports that with the 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 staging and the the um I don't know the the sort of the the mechanics of or as you say, the the kind of cultural lexicon um, of the sitcom. And and here's where, having been quite grumpy and conservative (laughs) for the first sort of 20 minutes, conservative hopefully with a small c, I'll try and be a bit more sort of um, embracing of of progression in that respect. And I think what it's doing therefore with that, um, and again, back to that, this the book, uh, Paul Young's book, The Cinema Dreams Its Rivals, he makes this argument that essentially, I think he'd get on with us, Chris, because he essentially says, you know, uh, film isn't a thing. Film is a is a series of conventional practices. You know, the film was never a thing. It was one. It was always about multiple objects before it was even classified as cinema. Um, so all films are about cinema because all films are about embodying a certain imaginary relationship to distill something that's nebulous into a into a regulated practice of doing cinema. Every Hollywood film is about cinema because every Hollywood film makes a thing in a certain way to define it as cinema. Um, and, you know, so therefore he's welcome on the podcast at any time because that's what obviously what we believe. Um, but, but therefore, all films sort of enact a process of imagining cinema into being. All television mm-hmm. shows enact a process of imagining television into being. And we could argue that this is imagining streamed, the streamed series into being because it's announcing itself on this platform. It's announcing itself 
as neither television or cinema. Because by using something like the sitcom, it's showing us everything it isn't. It's showing us how not episodic it is by being rigidly episodic for the first couple of episodes in a way that doesn't make any sense. Um, It's showing us how unconventional it is by being conventional. Um, And the way it kind of encourages us to sort of take a critical distance from the trappings of television allows it to sort of toe this middle ground. I think there's some really interesting sort of structural ways in which the show, you know, the show could begin in episode four. Um, if, if I remembered rightly, episode four kind of tells the origin of how this WandaVision thing came along and how actually what this is is a sort of projected stream from Wanda's... I don't even actually really know what it is, if I'm honest. But it's something to do, something to do with like powers and mind stones and things. Um, but, but, but you could watch that episode first and then watch the first three episodes and narratively that would make just as much sense um so the the show itself is encouraging you to sort of see the stream series as this site for uh creation and invention and exciting new possibilities in which the thing isn't a television show as as defined by the show itself and isn't a Marvel film as defined by a Marvel film because it's neither episodic nor is it durative. Um, so yes. I think that's what it's doing. It's it's imagining a new kind of thing into being. Yeah. So so I suppose that's that's performativity. Um, mm. And so there are again some connections between performativity and, and the performance of characters in in a constructed sitcom world i mean you're right episode four so episode four references the blip so that big Mm -hmm. sort of mcu character vanish you know the snap kind of thing um it focuses the first episode yeah to focus on the outside it's also the most intertextual but actually it's the most intertextual in relation to marvel rather than the most intertextual in relation to the american sitcom which definitely defines the previous three um because episode four runs parallel set in 2023 um which is when the series is set but it's it runs parallel to the first three episodes um and they talk the characters talk quite explicitly about the westview anomaly which is which is is the thing that is causing the one division that we've seen but you're right there's a reason that it doesn't start in episode four because if it started in episode four it would become about the audience or it would become about television as a sort of uh, there's some interesting stuff around alternate realities time travels and the idea of television as social experiment in the rise of of um sort of constructed reality shows and things like this and there are certainly lots of references in episode four um where characters start to unpack what it is they they sort of make sense of the ontology of the show and actually i think what the program deliberately does is that it it withholds that for for three episodes Mm. only giving us that in episode four because well, I don't know, but because by doing that, we start within the embedded fiction and and therein lies the hook of the series. Mm. But then they continue that for, for two other episodes. And you are starting to think, well, we start in the 50s with these homages to Dick Van Dyke and, and I Love Lucy. Mm. Um, we have these fake um, advertisements halfway through. We have a few visual effects, but it's relatively grounded in that sort of 1950s style. And episode two is the 1960s, where we have kind of flashes of colour. We have um, more misogynistic adverts um, that progressively define the series. Uh, we have uh, 
a setup that is particularly so episode two is when they um, take part in a talent show and they have to hide their real mm. magic under the veil of, of sort of failed magic if you like um, and then at the very very end Wanda becomes pregnant episode three is about really her, her kind of pregnancy and, and pregnancy focused um, and then episode four is, is back out into sort of the, the, the real world mm. in a way that tries to make sense of what we've seen in the previous three but clearly by by jumping us or, or uh, because we jump into episode one it's trying to I don't know is it is it is it literally just drawing a distinction in the way that you described it between kind of old and new this is what old TV looks like and later on we'll show you what new TV could look like and mm. what what television could be in a way that if we get out of the studio if we get out into the which is ironic because a lot of a lot of the, the Marvel films are filmed indoors in mm. green screens and blue screens and 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 stuff like that so I don't know. There's clearly a, a definite decision to to launch us into the and keep us in the world of the American sitcom for the first three episodes. Only having because it wants to with I get that narrative drama, bit of mystery, trying to withhold information. But it's it's also it does something different to the way that we're supposed to understand the role of television, presumably in yeah. this in this world. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and then I think if you kind of take that on a more on, on a sort of you know. Uh, user relationship with the text itself. You then, you know, I, I, I suspect a lot of Marvel fans, they got to episode four, watched episode four, and then it almost invites you to go back and watch episodes one to three again. Because yeah. because it, it's sort of courting you to look back over the clues that were there already. And I, and I haven't done that, but I have, you know, given it some Googling and other people have clearly done that, where they've gone back and, like, found the clues that, that tell you all, all along that episode four's revelation was coming. Um, I mean, there are some explicit ones. As you say, there's that bit at the end of episode one where you see someone watching the show. Um, and there are, you know, there's always a moment in each episode, at least one, where kind of uh, the thing kind of glitches or a character will, yeah, I love that. you know, all that sort of stuff. So... There is there is moments that make it very explicit, but there are more sort of moments that tease it. Um, so it's also breaking down that kind of televisual weekly continuity, isn't it? And that the, the the whole thing about the sitcom is it's every every Friday night at seven p.m. You know, is 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 or you know, there's a time, there's a place, there's a weekly structure, which what is what defines television or it used to define television. And then it breaks it. It goes, yeah. no, 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 pl- play with us, rewatch bits, watch it in. A, you can probably watch one division in about four different orders. Uh, and it's probably the only it's only the last episode you probably need to watch at the end and every of the other ones can probably be slotted into various different ways of viewing much in the same way that you hear there's about 80 different ways to watch the Marvel Cinematic Universe now isn't there and there's 80 different ways to watch Star Wars um, yeah. it gives yeah. it's, it's a user friendly dynamic that is definitely very much related to streaming culture because what is streaming culture but, but a kind of choose your own adventure entertainment porthole yeah. So, yeah, a few things. One, I'm now trying to remember, and if my old uh, university lectures are listening, I do apologise. <laughs> but the idea of the kind of viewing strip, television scholars talking about the viewing strip, where you have have the the program guide, and you can skip between. So there is no one definitive channel for you. You construct your own channel out of channel hopping, essentially. Um, but in the way that you're describing it, there's a, there's a real change then, even between episodes one and four, but even episode three. Um, to do with liveness and television has often been considered through discourses of liveness that film before a live studio audience Um, and I remember 
uh, studying yeah ghost watch on on as part of the the university degree and 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 how aliveness becomes an aesthetic it's why a lot of you know alan partridge knowing me knowing you the spoof chat show um the live event that's really not live but that that kind of aesthetic of liveness which is really mm-hmm. promoted in the first two in the first two episodes um through the through the laughter uh, and the sort of sitcom sitcomy style episode episode two actually sorry is where Wanda sees, if I remember, she sees a, what she thinks is a beekeeper um, and then rewinds the episode. So she announces that she's pregnant. Mm. Is this really happening? Because um, episode two is all really about fitting in, which is why the talent show uh, narrative works quite nicely because they have, yeah, have to hide their real real mm. powers. Um, then you have Wanda seeing... They announce that Wanda announces that she's pregnant almost instantly. Uh, Wanda, they, they can then go outside and see a, hear a noise, see a beekeeper, or what they think is a beekeeper. And then the episode rewinds back to the pregnancy reveal. Then it shifts to the 1970s, and we move from black and white to color, to technicolor. Mm-hmm. So the liveness aesthetic, or the live aesthetic that was really promoted as a sort of element of the first couple of episodes, is, as you say, then absolutely that continuity is ruptured because... One, because we're watching this on Disney Plus. Two, because streaming is is what it is. Three, because I could watch them all in one afternoon. And then four, because the program itself chooses to play with the assumption of seriality and continuity upon which the sitcom is founded. Because you don't have to wait for the next episode. Well, you, you do, but you can also rewind and just watch the second half of an episode in a slightly different way. And then... And then you jump ahead to the, and then episode three of the 1970s, the Brady Bunch, Good Times, the Mary Tyler Moore Show, the Partridge Family. Um, that's the first time where Vision says something's wrong here, and the episode cuts and the scene restarts, and suddenly we're, and so there's loads and loads of moments. Even I'd forgotten it was so early because I, I think of episode four as being this big shift in mm. in our worldview. Um, but actually, it, it happens quite early on, where they start to destabilize the, the the liveness of the sitcom that they've they work so hard to to emphasize in the first episode. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, beyond even that, just like that that moment that destabilization takes place from the very first publicity photo. You know, that it's the absurdity of the image yes. of of a giant red robot um, and um, a you know magic wielding witch sitting together on a sofa in suburban 1950s America. It's, you know, it's that that also highlights all these things because even when the thing is at its most sitcom-y, yeah. there, is a, there is a critical distance being invited between um, the reality and, uh, I guess, the fantasy. But the fantasy in this case is um, not, not in terms of the, the, the fantasy of, of there being witches and robots, but the fantasy that Wanda is creating um, to avoid grief, to avoid trauma, to avoid yep. the acceptance of time, um, and to and to stitch herself within a continuity that doesn't move, which is which is again very sitcommy. You know, Homer Simpson um, is still the same age, and now didn't he grow up in the nineties or something? According to some recent uh, <laughs> episode, um, and you know, uh, the characters stay the same. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think I think all of that is really really interesting as as to how it does with that. What's the role in animation then in all of this? Because I think we could talk about animation in terms of. Uh, cell animation and how that's used. Uh, yes. That's probably the easiest one to start with. And then we should also probably talk about 
VFX and the sort of the the other way that this is folded into the narrative. Should we start with 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 sort of the, you know the the cartoon uh, aspect of it all? Yes. So the cartoon there are there are a series of moments, or the series is punctuated by some really interesting uh, animated title sequences, animated adverts, uh, motion graphics um, that help to actually. I, it's interesting. I, I mean, it's sort of it's both emphasised and downplayed. It it doesn't draw attention to itself, but actually, what it does is quite nicely accompanies and helps to support the 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 time frame or the chronology of the of the series. So. Yeah, the, the the second episode, the animated title sequence, drawn in the sort of bewitched style, which was a style. Well, the, the, the sitcom Bewitched from the from the sixties. Its title sequence was designed by the Hanna Barbera studio. So I know that we've talked about Hanna Barbera, um, but one of the one of the sort of I guess eminent American animation studios, uh, founded not long before the episode is sort of set so founded in 1957 um and sort of heavily involved in in the early tom and jerry tom and tom and jerry shorts and and only recently i think anna barbera only recently closed closed um 2001 something like that but anyway so we have this animated title sequence it's very much in the spirit of kind of bewitched and to a lesser extent i i dream of genie um and it essentially just shows these characters drawn in graphic form really cell animated quite blocky characters um but again you're seeing you're seeing characters in in sort of caricatured caricatured form and the absurdity of seeing vision as this sort of android Mm -hmm. drawn as he goes through changes into his human form and then goes off to work Uh, and then the rest of the 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 sequences um starring wanda maximoff as she goes to the the supermarket and then it shows um vision in front of a water cooler as he goes off to work so it's very mad men then you fast forward and i think it's episode six where you have the next, you have a stop motion clay advert for a magic, a yo magic yogurt. Um, and as well as, and that's the episode that's influenced by Malcolm in the Middle. So that's sort of, you know, mm. and I've put here's my note Malcolm in the Middle, the citations are spot on. Um, so as part of the, the show's sort of itemization of the history of sitcoms, um, I've, I feel like it uses animation, the datedness of animation to really uh, establish the chronology um, in ways that in ways that you f- you forget so you watch WandaVision and oh yes animation used to look like that and it, it really <laughs> gets that's really part of that cultural lexicon of the of the sitcom animation is part of that you know 1950s the use of animated title sequences um, the tail end of the golden age of the American cartoon the mm. shift towards 60s and 70s um, UPA studio style um, Mr. Magoo style damn uh, Bashar has written a book called Cartoon Vision, which is all about um, UPA and that sort of mid-century modernism and and, um, stuff like that. So I really liked these little moments where the series is engaging with with animation. Um, But animation in its non-sort of VFX form, there's still some debate around whether VFX are a part of of animation. And obviously we've spent 70-odd episodes assuming that they are but that's not always the case Mm. um and then on top of that as you say it has all these vfx sequences that are designed to show the superpower but what i really like and this is where it sort of links to something like the incredibles that the the connection or the tension between the superheroic and the domestic and what it means for for sort of to place superhero characters in particular within a domestic space at a time where in the 50s and 60s you have like the rise in in sort of 
domestic gadgets and things that seem to be magical and and incredible and the on top of the television and all that sort of stuff so there's a the increased role of technology within the american homes of the 50s and 60s is a nice counterpoint to the intrusion of of these technological bodies as they go into the domestic space and are sort of like they're like vision is basically an appliance and so there's some really nice stuff around the domestic and the superheroic which is ably supported by by visual effects um and it's not really until the last couple of episodes where the visual effects really sort of i think take over yeah and it's interesting because i think maybe this is this is my inexperience of animation talking but i i think you know people tend to think of cartoons as being associated or, or animation as being associated either with the sort of 30s and 40s Disney era uh, or, you know, maybe the 80s, 90s. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of located within those spheres. But the 50s is... Is, is the era for cell animation in terms of the the popular imaginary era, it seems. Usually, when we engage with these texts that make kind of, you know, nostalgic references to cell animation, actually, what they're referring to is the sort of 50s, 60s era of mm. television cartoons um, and, and the role of cartooning in, in television. And, and, I, and I just, I don't know, it's, just, it's interesting to highlight that. And, and what you're saying about appliances, I think, is really interesting. And, of course, you know, that's what bewitched kind of is about as much as it what, what it ever was about uh, bewitched was is a show about you know and there's not just bewitched there's i dream a genie which is uh, the monsters uh the adams yep. family all these kind of um fantastical sitcoms in yep. which suburbia the, the the insanity and fantasy of suburbia is made is the object of fun by having these characters that sort of do the things or don't do the things that suburbia is supposed to represent. So with Bewitched, it's very similar, you know, that her magical powers essentially allow her to be the perfect housewife. Um, yeah. and, and there's a lot, you know, there's lots of discourse around Bewitched as to whether that's a critique or therefore a sort of affirmation of the figure of the housewife and the way it does it. And it's kind of, you know, classic, a bit of both. Um, and then the Adams Family, where like, in one way, the Adams Family is the complete subversion of suburban norms and in another way, are the nicest family you're ever likely to meet and the most suburban family in many ways because they represent family values uh, it, it, exactly as it was intended. So, yeah, I think I think by returning to those things, making them strange um, and also engaging with them makes for a really kind of lovely cocktail. I think I'm, I'm just confused about sort of the, the role of... of who, who this is aimed at as I say is it seems to be this kind of nostalgia for a thing that most haven't ever even really encountered but just knew existed once I don't think people watching WandaVision by and large have seen many episodes of um, Bewitched or I Love Lucy but they sort of are aware of what it's doing whilst not being yeah. engaged with the specifics of it I mean I really like the 80s episode 5 Roseanne Family Ties Growing Pains Full House yeah. that kind of aesthetic um more so than Malcolm in the Middle, and then the, the the episode seven, the Modern Family, the sort of talking heads, um, using the vocabulary of the sitcom, um, expanding the boundaries of the the sort of uh, there's one line expanding the boundaries of the false world we created, um, which is it, it, the series is is at its most declamatory in that sense when it's uh, identifying itself as a constructed television program by having yeah. the voice off screen and, and that kind of stuff, but. I suppose the last, so where are we? Up to episode seven, it's relatively formulaic in terms of what it's doing with the American sitcom. But yeah, I mean, I, I there are lots of details in the series that 
that of course reward repeat repeat viewings um mm. and i've struggled to perhaps pick my pick my f- favorite i do like the 80s one simply because it also introduces pietro at the end which is another level of sort of intertextuality yeah. so do you want to do you want to because i remember we had a conversation about it and you said did you get the pietro thing and i was like yeah i think i i think i do but yeah, well, that... I mean, obviously, like it, it, it's just the casting of of Evan Peters in that role, um, given that he plays uh, Quicksilver in the the uh, X Men films, doesn't he? Um, it's it's just a, I mean, it, it sent the Twitter sphere into um, overdrive <clears throat> when it happened, and I think there, I think it's, I think what's interesting is that you're right that it all seems to be the Marvel Cinematic Universe all seems to be going the way of a multiverse. Yeah. Um, which which both m- sounds interesting on some levels, but also, again, it seems to me is another way of having lots and lots of stuff with no consequence, because I can't help feel that in these multiverses, we're going to find all the characters that are dead at the moment actually alive, and they're going to come back, and it doesn't matter, and nothing will matter, and any- anything will matter. And I think that is the, the, the all these this new set of films and, and TV shows like this that seem to be about illusionism and invoking yes. multiple different realities for the characters through illusionism are going to have to tread a very fine line between a self-conscious acknowledgement of the role of illusionism and artifice and engaging with that and just making a bunch of illusions that don't seem to matter anymore because how many times are we going to sit through a marvel film where it all becomes a dream i mean it's the wizard of oz isn't it as the second wizard of oz you know how many <laughs> times we've now seen spider-man far from home and now this where we have to watch the first two thirds only to have the how it revealed that none of that actually happened um you know none of it happened uh, I'm okay with that. I need stakes, though. I need um, I need uh, something to sort of get my teeth into, and and it'll be interesting how they create that in a world where anything can happen, does happen, and is happening. Well, I remember. I know you've written a blog post for the for the site on this, but this idea of kind of the idea of the consequential action and and the investment that we have yeah. to have in action that is. Or we we have to to buy into the dramatic stakes of a, of a Marvel film, and this goes back to the very first citation that you mentioned that the sort of uh, um, James Taylor's recent work on Marvel and intertextuality and and, and everything's connected, and and actually that's part of a kind of comfort blanket of it'll all make sense in the end. But I'm just interested in this sort of event narrative drama that is consequential, or in, um, yeah, narrative drama that is consequential, and and we we buy into the stakes of the narrative and end on a cliffhanger. But then at the same time, end on a cliffhanger in an episode of a program, which is part of a, a, a universe where characters can can be reborn and return and mm-hmm. come back and reemerge or be rebuilt in the case of Vision. Um, yeah. WandaVision is all about that. It's all about yeah. the inconse- WandaVision is all about the inconsequentiality of narrative action from the previous yeah. thing. Because it's about well the characters died, but actually it's okay because and then there's a doubling there's a, some nice sequences where where Paul Bettany is sort of fighting with himself the mm-hmm. old and the new version of, of Vision, but I just wondered this idea of of inconsequentiality in relation to the Marvel films yeah. because you're buying into to, to to a narrative events that might end up being inconsequential. Yeah, and I think that matters. I think it matters aesthetically, sure. I think it matters politically and ethically as well. In that, I think you know, actions, actions have consequences. Uh, I'm not. I don't. You know, I, and on one level, the films are about that. You know, I think you know, 
the 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 opening twenty minutes of of Endgame is probably the best bit of of a lot of Marvel movies where we we dwell on the consequences of the snap. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The fact that that's still being referenced is important, um, but but a shallow consequence where okay that character's going to go away, but don't worry, there'll be a prequel in two years, and then after that, there'll probably be something else. Um, that character's going to die, but actually won't die because an alternative version of that character's going to come into it. Um, yeah. I think there's a muddy... You know, I think the role of the Marvel viewer is to take on this kind of godlike, omniscient fact-finder through all these different yeah. strata of narratives, bring them all together, and and... And by doing so, kind of hold this position where the world itself is very complicated, but not very complex, uh, to reiterate my earlier point. And, and unfortunately, one of the complex things about the world is that actions have, have irredeemable consequences that cannot be solved through any kind of phase strategy. Um, so... Um, <laughs> But, but uh, it's in, it's interesting that that, that that these kinds of structures around a character that could be could return again or it's okay we'll hmm. have an origin story so they're dead chronologically but they're yeah. very much alive in the way that the the franchise is is organizing time. I suppose yeah. it makes me think of of superhero movies more generally because there are certain characters Bond, Doctor Who, superheroes where casting is always who's going to be the next one who's going to be the new one who's going to play the younger one who's going to be what happens if we cast this person yeah. um, so there's, the superhero movies are are specific i would say in lots of ways within hollywood because of the because they're you know they're often adaptations of particular source texts and so mm. there is a fidelity to a fan fidelity to an original or a a, a true who's your favorite bond etc etc but with superhero movies, which are all about, as I said, identities in recession, and I'm, I'm sort of interested in the ways in which um, the superhero genre emerged after the financial crisis and the sort of superhero movie as recessionary genre, um, the impact of the recession in American culture on identity and people going into recession and having to figure out what they're going to do and maybe take on a different job and, and what that meant mm. for gender. There's a great book, Gendering the Recession, about the impact of, of the um, the recession on men and women, in the mm -hmm. case of women, um, kind of going back home and the problems re reiterating that 1950s cult of domesticity um, and the idea of failure, whereas in the case of masculinity, the male, well, this is an opportunity to get back to basics. This is an opportunity to go and work on the ranch or go and... Like, this is, uh, recession as opportunity versus recession as failure and there's something interesting around how iron man rocks up in 2008 it's fine men will be fine yeah. so there's the post-recessionary element to, to to the marvel cinematic universe but i was thinking about the superhero genre more generally and this idea of what identity means but also on screen but also off screen mm. the casting why it's really important that this one is the this is the new spider-man this is the and you get that a lot with and and this is i think where the mcu is going with regards to its is intertextuality moving across franchises and 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 iterations of intellectual property so the fact that you have a character from the sam raimi spider-man films are now appearing in the new marvel mm. version of the character means that intertextuality is really sort of breaking down the borders between fictional worlds but it's also breaking the, down the borders of of kind of character ownership and different iterations of the same character um so this idea of inconsequentiality is now playing out extra textually in terms of well it doesn't matter that that he's left the role because he'll he'll actually return to the role and mm. and 
be in a film with the new version of his and all this sort of so there's something really interesting about the 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 industrial structure of inconsequentiality yeah. um of which this is very much a, a part, and there's there's a nice yeah a nice link between inconsequentiality of the Marvel films and the seriality of a sitcom, and what it is to put those two things together. Yeah, which is what the which is I think what the what WandaVision kind of is really interestingly articulating through its as I say through both yeah. its the anxieties, the hopes, the dreams it, it creates through that intermingling. So I think uh, on that level, yeah. I think it's a really interesting yeah. um, show. And you know, I, I, I've I've been a bit down on Marvel. I do like them a lot, and I think you know another studio wouldn't even bother being this interesting. So like it's you know it's worth Fair. highlighting highlighting that uh, you know. I, that, 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 that it's a complicated relationship I have with it rather than a completely dismissive one. Yeah, um, yeah. But I think that's probably that's probably our time, um, Chris. Yeah. We probably now, now need to sort of, I don't know what happens now. We, we turn into Technicolor and move a decade forward uh, onto the next episode, something like that. Um, <laughs> yes, or just give, yeah, give up the illusion, accept the smoke and mirrors, lose our children and vision, yeah. and then just disintegrate. Sure, and I get recast as it by Evan Peters. I'm kind of yeah. happy with that. Um, cool. All right, uh, listeners, you can follow us as always on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit at FanAnimResearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research. Let us know what you think of WandaVision. Um, be more positive than me, perhaps. Uh, be as positive as Chris, perhaps. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, or you can email us at fananimresearch at gmail.com. You can access our previous archive of blogs and podcasts at fantasy-animation.org. There's um, stuff on loads of different Marvel movies in our blogs. Um, and we've done podcasts now on Black panther and yep. captain marvel as well yeah. so um plenty to access in the back catalog as well otherwise that's been us for another episode and uh we'll see you next time in some form bye we got some cooking and it's looking good